0: Uh, privilege, oppression, and the gospel, a biblical response to intersectionality. And I imagine perhaps at least a few of you are here because you're wondering what in the world is intersectionality, and you just want to find out, and rather than a simple Google search, you decided to sit in a workshop for an hour, hour. so welcome. Uh, Glad that each of you are here. Uh, Really, this is a topic that uh, goes beyond intersectionality to to just considering what, what is justice, What is justice, biblically defined? What is justice as the world around us understands it? How can we process these things in a God-honoring and and word-centered way? That's my my burden for this topic. And as I did yesterday with my workshop on transgenderism, I do just want to show some appreciation for the THM program here at DBTS, uh, which I was part of from 2017, from 2020. It really gave me the opportunity to dive into topics like this that I really honestly would not have taken time for unless I was forced to do so academically. And so I'm very thankful for the opportunity to to have studied this and, and written on it as part of a THM seminar on ethics a few years ago. And um, really, I I consider myself as somewhat of an unusual candidate to even be speaking to a topic such as this. Um, I'm not really wired in terms of my personality and interests to engage with politics and culture wars. I'm I'm really not. I know these things are important, but I I don't enjoy them, frankly. Um, But I do care for people, the people in my congregation. I've ministered for years with college students. And I've spoken to congregants who are employees at companies where they are under severe and serious pressure. Uh, A pressure that those of us who are on church staffs or a seminary or college staff are, are somewhat shielded from, but our people, who we, who we love and must shepherd and care for, are really on the front lines of some monumental cultural shifts and, and pressures. And so the Lord stirred in me a burden to, to help people recognize poisonous ideologies underneath what they're facing and, and to respond to these things in a biblical and faithful way. Well, let's take a moment to pray uh, before we dive into these notes together. Father, we thank you for uh, your word and the clarity of it. We bow before the authority of your word because in doing so, we are bowing before you as our Lord. And Lord, we, we trust that your word on uh, this topic is sufficient, uh, that it is clear, and that it is good and that as we apply your word to our world, to our culture, to the situations, and to the people around us, uh, we trust that that will lead to good and to flourishing. And Lord, we do pray according to your word that we would not be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, but rather speaking the truth in love, We want to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And so we pray these things in his name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Well, intersectionality has been over the last five to 10 years, a fast growing ideology that is sweeping through college campuses of America, sweeping through our social media feeds. Um, More and more is finding its way into workplaces, specifically through DEI departments and and entering many of the public spaces of America. Not always accompanied by the name intersectionality, but the effects of it are seen in, in many places in our culture. Uh, if you've ever been told directly or indirectly to check your privilege, uh, if you've ever been told directly or indirectly to defer to the feelings, for example, of quote-unquote sexual minorities, if, if you've ever been encouraged to repent of sins committed not by you but by others who happen to look like you in some external way, Um, then you have experienced some of the effects of of intersectionality. So today, I want us to evaluate intersectional ideology going to even some primary sources. And I want to note specifically how this ideology may impact your local church ministry. And I want to contrast this ideology with a biblical view of identity, which I am persuaded produces better justice and leads to better uh, flourishing. And uh, right off the bat, I do want to uh, make it clear that there are too many notes here for me to read every single word that I've (laughs) written out for you. And so uh, please don't be alarmed or surprised if I'm skipping over some things a little bit. I did want to present some comprehensive notes so that you could chew on these things, especially if this topic is brand new to you. And I will be going through them uh, somewhat quickly. Um, first, I want us to understand what is intersectionality, and I want to define it um, by a not so much an academic definition but more of a popular level definition and explanation. Be, because it really is on the popular level that my concern is, where where your congregants are. Not so much to deal with it in a heady academic way, but, but to see it as it is on the ground level. And this definition by Catherine Boyer is is not the most academically precise definition. In fact, in some ways you'll see it's even grammatically awkward, but, but this is the kind of explanation that a, a college freshman is likely to hear in one of their classes. Or this is a an understanding that, that the DEI department at your congregants' workplaces are likely to be informed by. So here's what Catherine Boyer writes. She, she writes that intersectionality is the intersecting systems of privilege and oppression. We'll talk a lot about those two words, but, but she explains privilege as when someone doesn't have to face an institutionalized form of oppression, and oppression is when they do have to face it. She says, people can be oppressed and privileged in many different ways. Most commonly, you hear about gender, sexual orientation, or race. So she says a straight, white, cisgender male, if you were in the workshop yesterday, we talked about that word cisgender. It means that your gender and sex match, which of course is normative, but the whole point of the term is that we're not supposed to understand it as normative. Anyhow, uh, a straight, white, cisgender male has straight privilege, white privilege, cis privilege, and male privilege. Nevertheless, a a straight, white, cisgender man uh, is not just privileged. Maybe he comes from a lower socioeconomic status. He's oppressed for that. Maybe he isn't of Christian faith. He's oppressed for that. Now, here, the alarm bells might start going off, and you go, whoa, this isn't just about you know, addressing prejudice. There's an agenda here. You're oppressed if you're not of Christian faith. Maybe he suffers from a physical disability, has a mental health problem. He's oppressed for that too. This one made me smile. If he's not conventionally attractive, he can even be oppressed for that. Well, there's one oppression point for me. Maybe none of this applies to me except for this point in particular. Pretty sure I can claim being oppressed by not being conventionally attractive she she concludes race gender gender expression sexual orientation socioeconomic <laughs> status physical and mental ability religion language age physical attractiveness occupation education are just some of the categories of intersectionality. So so picture, maybe you've seen pictures of the busiest intersection of the world. I believe it's in Tokyo or or Seoul, one of those cities, and it's just like 18 different streets coming together, all right? That's That's the metaphor that we're supposed to have in mind. All of these categories converging in various ways in various people. So here's how this is supposed to work. In each identity class, those who are in the minority and or those who are perceived to lack power women are not the minority. I think it's slightly over 50% of the world is women because men can be idiots and that's why they tend to die younger, right? Um, but but even though they're not technically the minority, in that case, women are perceived to lack power. So those in the minority and or those who lack power are considered to be oppressed. and And individuals who find themselves in more than one oppressed category, such as a black woman or a a disabled, lower-class man, are said to experience a matrix of oppression that is uh, makes their life exponentially more challenging than the experience of those who find themselves in only one or, or no oppressed categories. The more categories of oppression an individual can claim, regardless of their actual life experience, by the way, and this is an important point that will come out in this workshop, but the more categories of oppression an individual can claim the more intersectionality is said to uh, be intended to advocate for them. Joe Carter uh, explains it this way, Uh, an intersectional activist might recognize that black men in America have suffered oppression, and there's a lot of real history and truth behind that, but within this framework that the heterosexual Christian black man may be considered more privileged than a white homosexual, Wiccan, transgender woman, i.e. a white man. (laughs) The thinking goes that while the black man may be a racial minority, the trans woman is affected by a matrix of oppression. Discrimination because they're a woman, even though they're a man. Discrimination because they are a sexual minority. Discrimination because they are a religious minority. And so on. You know, I think one simple way that we can grasp this is to do a thought experiment If I were to make two sinful choices, I could pick up four oppression points within the framework of intersectionality. And I'm not being facetious. I'm not actually gonna do this, but um, if I were to identify as a woman, I would now be a woman, so I'd be oppressed for that reason. I would be transgender, so I would be oppressed for that reason. I'm assuming I would still be attracted to my wife, so that would make me lesbian. Um, and, and then let's say I were to also convert to Islam, I could pick up a fourth intersectionality point that way through, through, through two sinful choices. So, um, and I've got to move quickly here. I do want to leave time for questions at the end. Um, but but, but that is not, obviously I'm not going to do that, but but, but setting it up that way is not a facetious or ridiculous way to explain this. In fact, I remember coming across a headline uh, from theroot.com, and the headline literally read this way, straight black men are the white people of black people. In other words... Intersectionality is not really intended to advocate against genuine prejudice in people's hearts toward those who happen to look differently. That is used as as a front to get in the door, but what you find trailing behind is all sorts of other sinful agendas. And people are encouraged to advocate for all sorts of sinful choices and identities and, 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 and and the race a conversation is fronted because yes, that's obviously wrong, but understand that there's a whole lot attached to that that comes behind. So rather than being viewed as isolated categories, all all of these forms of oppression are said to be interconnected and mutually reinforcing in an interlocking system of hierarchy and power. It's really somewhat of a conspiracy theory that, that underlies this. Well, where did this come from? Intersectional theory has roots in Marxist and post-Marxist schools of thought, including a critical race theory. And if you know anything about critical race theory, I hope you understand it's very different than the civil rights movement. Very different aims, very different strategy toward those aims. Even though many will try to link them, they are very, very different in their approach and in their presuppositions. Um, uh, intersectionality is a direct descendant of feminism, although in many ways it advances beyond more moderate versions of feminism. That's where uh, this philosophy and ideology comes from. And, and, and I, I do want to acknowledge that there are many people who will just throw out terms like neo-Marxism, CRT, and and do it very sloppily, kind of as a pejorative or as a conversation ender. And I'm I'm not advocating for that. However, this is simply the truth, that advocates of intersectionality will tell you quite directly that they are operating within a Marxist or a post-Marxist school of thought. They are very, very plain and clear about that. Uh, Kimberly Crenshaw was the first uh, to employ this intersection analogy to describe how Black women are uniquely oppressed because they can be victims of both racism and sexism. Uh, in her in her paper, which um, was actually published in a law journal she cited three court cases in which black women were discriminated against in a way that black men or white women, white, white women would not have been. And at this point, that seems like a very good thing. It is a very good thing. Who among us would not want justice for, for black women in our culture? I want that. And, and if it had ended there, there wouldn't have been any problem. But, but from the very outset, within this groundbreaking influential paper, Crenshaw right away introduced certain ideas that would lead this theory far beyond simply legal justice for black women. She indicated that layers of oppression should apply as well to class, physical ability, and notably, sexual preference and identity. Um, Within this paper, she responds to studies bemoaning the lack of black fathers in homes and and, and those who would point to to that as a very real societal factor. And in response to that, she criticized, quote, patriarchal assumptions. And so from the very beginning, intersectional theory presumed the validity of various sexual preferences and identities and and outright rejected, uh, of course, the biblical idea of male leadership within families, and, and, and went from there in, in a few short decades to becoming a full-blown ideology. Um, one of the leading advocates, Vivian May, um, describes intersectionality as idealistic with, these are her words, utopian goals of eradicating inequity, exploitation, and supremacy, whatever that means, both at the micro-political level of everyday life and at the macro-political level of social structures, material practices, and cultural norms. So again, if if this had remained a a legal issue where where people, made in the image of God, were advocated for in a fair and just and righteous way, that would be great. But when you've got utopian ideals attached to an ideology, well, this, this this is a worldview. This is broad and far encompassing. Um, David French, the, the, two th- the 2018 version of David French, um, commented uh, of intersectionality that it's identity politics on steroids where virtually every issue in American life can and must be filtered through the prisms of race, gender, sexual orientation, and gender identity. And as many have observed, these categories are quite Selective and biased. Now, Tony Esselin lays out a few uh, contradictions here. Of course, born again Christians are not included, despite whatever pressures and persecutions they may face, especially in some other cultures. Right. Uh, Coal miners in Appalachia, blue-collar workers, um, men who are, by the way, ten times more likely to die at work than are their sisters, not included as as an oppressed category. Um, Bakers who decline to bake the cake are not included in the oppressed category. Children whose lives are maimed by divorce uh, are not considered at all as an oppressed class. Very selective who, who's included. Um, and, and that's intentional. And again, advocates such as Vivian May state that very clearly. Intersectionality is not and does not aim to be neutral. And, and please note this. This is, this is vital to our understanding and evaluation of this. She writes in her, in her book, and I've got the name of it there in the fo- footnotes. She writes that Christians may not be viewed as oppressed, because, in her words, the church has been a place where heteropatriarchal forms of power have reigned in pernicious ways. Now, of course, the response to that should not be to say that no church has ever been without fault. That is patently not the case. But she's not talking about churches that abuse their position or that are corrupt or hypocritical. She's talking about churches that say uh, homosexuality is a sin, Churches that say men should be leaders. That is, that is a heteropatriarchal power, supremacy, which must be abolished. She, she directly says that intersectionality is not meant to advocate for black women who are conservative Bible-believing Christians because of their heteronormative privilege. She would describe this and many would describe this as a case of the, 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 the oppressed victim having some sort of a Stockholm syndrome that sympathizes with the oppressor. And so if you're, a, if you're a black woman, which supposedly intersectionality was about to begin with, well, Sarah, we won't advocate for you if you're a Bible-believing Christian and, and you say that males, males should lead in the home and that homosexuality is a sin. Um, so, so there's a there's a 180 degree turn here from what was presented at the outset, um, despite the fact that that these sinful um, identities are are very much at the heart of intersectional ideology and idealism. Um, there are a number of well-meaning Christians who have been enticed by intersectionality's framework. And, and to, to look at this charitably, um, we are committed to some biblical ideals, such as compassion, empathy, love, equity, right? Justice. Um, and, and because we're committed to these good and biblical things, we can get sucked into a framework which is said to be about some of these things, on the surface. Um, for example, Joe Carter, who I, I quoted approvingly earlier, uh, he, he certainly rejects certain aspects of intersectionality, um, but does uh, have some good things to say about the framework as a whole. He, he endorses its valuable contributions, such as its elucidation of the multiplier effect of structural oppression. He even recommends reading biblical narratives, such as the story of Ruth, through the lens of intersectionality. You can better interpret the Bible. If you understand the intersectional framework, you'll be able to preach Ruth better um, is his endorsement. Um, Jarvis Williams, again, to be fair, he he does uh, reject the unbiblical views of gender and sexuality, but but says, hey, this intersectional framework is very, very helpful to uh, pastors and to Christians. Nate Collins, an influential SBT grad, says the same thing. Um, by the way, I don't I don't note these guys to to knock Southern Seminary. I, I actually respect Southern Seminary quite a bit as a very conservative institution. My point is, if this can influence even an institution such as this, then then it really is knocking on the door of a lot of even conservative Christian institutions. And hey, let's acknowledge Christians have at times over the years committed terrible sins that I would never try to defend. Christians have been guilty of inexcusable prejudice in many ways. And so so the question comes, can intersectionality show Christians a more compassionate and just way forward? And, and at first glance, there may be seem to be enough common ground between Christianity and intersectional theory because we we do understand the pervasive nature of sin and the fact that it affects people and society as a whole. Uh, we 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 long to show mercy to people who are truly afflicted and mistreated. Uh, we we should oppose injustice of all kinds, and and we want to oppose hatred, mistreatment. Um, there can also be a pragmatic temptation, by the way, to latch onto frameworks such as this. I've actually heard Christians say, well, this is the wave of the future. And churches that are not open to latching onto what they seem to be, what they would say to be legitimate aspects of intersectionality and surrounding ideologies, if we don't latch onto that in some way, we will become irrelevant because this is the wave of the future. Um, So it it becomes a pragmatic, almost a marketing seeker-driven approach and, and motivation. But my appeal is that Christians should refuse to be drawn into this framework because it's overarching worldview irreconcilably contradicts the biblical Christian worldview. Um, And I'm glad that this has been noted, by the way, over the past few years, even even since my initial research on this in 2017. um, This has been acknowledged by a couple of different groups, and and that's much appreciated. Um, I've benefited a lot from uh, Neil Shenvey. A number of you may be familiar uh, with his writing and his his research. Um, He addresses the broader category of critical thinking, but his words on that topic are very much applicable to intersectionality. He writes, opposition to racism and sexism does not require the acceptance of critical theories. In fact, he says, we dare not baptize secular thinking under the naive assumption that it will fit seamlessly into a Christian worldview. Because more often than not, critical theory functions not just as a tool, but as a worldview. It offers a comprehensive narrative. Remember those utopian ideals? It offers a comprehensive narrative for understanding all of reality, from our fundamental problem as human beings, which is seen as oppression, to its fundamental solution, which is seen as liberation. Thus, it will compete with Christianity as the governing functional lens through which we see the world either Christianity will displace our commitment to critical theory or critical theory will displace our commitment to Christianity. We cannot have both. I'd like us to recognize some of the fruits of intersectionality and and even note where you may see this um, in your uh, discipleship context, even within a local church. Um, We do want to evaluate the fruits of this ideology because even though there is a claim for the moral high ground of compassion and justice and love, the the actual fruits of intersectionality are are quite bad. Uh, Number one, intersectionality wrongly blends categories of oppression in such a way that is frankly untruthful, inaccurate, and in such a way that practically sinful identities and choices gain cachet. consider that within intersectionality's list of oppressed groups, even if you go back to the Catherine Boyer um, explanation, some categories are fixed and others are not. Nobody chooses the ethnicity or the gender that they are born into. Nobody chooses to be born with a physical or mental disability. And of course, to be hateful uh, for any of those reasons, of course, is wrong. However, Uh, one can choose their sexual behavior. You can't necessarily choose your particular temptations, don't mishear me, but you can choose whether or not to to act on those temptations or identify in accordance with those sinful temptations. One can choose to defy their God-given gender, and choosing to act in these sinful ways doesn't make one oppressed, biblically speaking. Um, consider even the fact that those who are born into a particular socioeconomic class it's not necessarily stuck there the rest of their life, especially in a culture such as ours. You do have the prospect of moving into a different socioeconomic class. Religious belief is not fixed. Even physical attractiveness can be improved at least to some extent, right? Um, praise the Lord for that. <laughs> Um, new languages can be learned, occupations may be chosen and changed. To, to treat these various categories and groupings as if they were all parallel is is simply not a truthful way to view the world. Now, consider the fact that this may come into uh, the local church. Um, racism, uh, of course, dif- and we know racism has actually been redefined, but I'm speaking of it simply as prejudice based on someone's skin color or background. Uh, racism and homosexuality are both sins. Amen. But there can be a tendency sometimes to speak very boldly and harshly against racism and to speak very sheepishly against homosexuality. Remember the whole line about God whispers about those sins? Uh, So, you know, are, are gender roles taught boldly or apologetically? Like, yeah, we have to believe this because the Bible says it, but, you know, we'd really rather not. If, if you're quick to speak against a sin committed by the privileged and slow to speak against a sin committed by the oppressed, that is a fruit of intersectional thinking. Um, how do we process this biblically? Well, consider how the Bible addresses each of these categories. Um, is this group oppressed? What would that look like? How is that defined biblically? And what would justice look like biblically speaking? For example, if, um, Yes, in countless situations, women have suffered abuse at the hands of sinful men. Um, And Christians should unequivocally condemn that abuse. This does not mean that we should deny the complementary differences and design that God has, has designed or explain away the scriptures which reserve certain leadership roles for men. Let's have an understanding of justice that is shaped by scripture and and not impacted by the opinions of the world around us. Number two, intersectionality, um, in many ways, unjustly presumes the views and experience of individuals. And I'm thinking primarily of individuals within what would be considered to be oppressed categories, which leads to prejudgment of individuals based on externals and not based on reality. Um, Let's understand that intersectional theorists are attempting to speak for entire groups of people despite differences and even vehement ideological disagreement within those groups. I guess a popular level, very simplistic example of this would be the comment. I I believe it was Biden when he was a candidate said something like, you know, if you don't vote for me, you're not really black, right? That's a very simple example of what is being talked about here. Uh, well, who gets to decide that? It's a ridiculous statement, but he appointed himself as a spokesperson, actually for a, an identity category in, in which he was not even a part, but, but there's an ideological agenda that's, that's involved here. Um, here I quote Helen Pluckrose, who is uh, uh, in many ways very different from my perspective. She, um, she's a bisexual atheist, Um, But she has strong criticism for intersectionality. She explains that most women are not any kind of feminist. Most people of color are not scholars of critical race theory. Many LGBTs are indifferent to queer theory. And disabled people are not particularly likely to consider this part of their political identity. It is misguided to assume that by listening to intersectionals, we are listening to women or people of color or LGBTs or the disabled. We are, in fact, listening to a minority ideological view dominated by people, Usually from an economically privileged class, ironically, who have had a university education in the social sciences and or the necessary leisure time and education to study intersectionality, critical race theory, queer theory, and critical analyses of ableism. I believe I've heard her say in another context, intersectionality is really a a prime example of, of a first world problem. Again, this isn't to deny real injustices and prejudices that take place, but this is usually, uh, as a broader worldview, something come up by people who have the luxury <laughs> to, to invent uh, issues that in many cases aren't actually based in reality. Um, well, how can this this fruit come into the local church? Um, I think we can have a tendency to to cater, to pander based on externals. Is there a tendency to think that those who the world would consider to be disadvantaged to never be at fault, or to think the advantaged are, are always at fault? It's very interesting when I consider Leviticus 19.15. And of course, the Bible has a lot to say about love for the poor, being generous to the poor, amen? But But we are not to see the poor as people incapable of sin or wrong. And biblical justice evaluates a situation and an individual without regard to those social categories. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. Of course, there can be a temptation that direction as well. But in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. And so to to process this biblically, we want to follow Paul's instruction to regard no one according to the flesh. To not go into a relationship with someone assuming things about them based on how they look. What's important in those cases is to listen to not bring any kind of presumption in, but to listen, to get to know the person as a person, as an individual made in the image of God. And recognize, of course, I hope, I hope to not be misunderstood in this workshop, that in some cases, how they look or the background they have come from has led to some very real and some very bad experiences in their lives. None of this is intended to be dismissive to those very real situations and experiences. I've got a dear uh, brother in our church who uh, it's just been a real joy to, to mentor him and be his brother in Christ over the years. Comes from a very different background than I did. Looks very different than I do. And, and when he talks about the, the, the many experiences he has had of, for example, being followed through a convenience store, and perhaps that's linked to, to the color of his skin or his hairstyle or, or the, the clothes that he's wearing, I'm not going to be dismissive of that. I'm going to be sympathetic and listen, and I'm sorry that that happened to you. Um, but but I'm, I'm not motivated to say, well, because of those experiences or because of externals, you must identify perpetually as a helpless victim. No, I want to empower him to take advantage of every opportunity the Lord providentially brings his way to fully use the wonderful ways that he is gifted to bless those around him. And so, so, so this, I believe, is, is how the Bible would have us engage with people, not to view them primarily in terms of the categories into which the world places them, but viewing them according to biblical anthropology and evaluating them according to their actual choices and actual experiences. Not judging people by the content of, or by the color of their skin or other externals but but according to the content of their character judging not by appearances but judging with right judgment as Jesus said number three um, intersectionality tends to uh, shame and silence those who are considered privileged for for whatever uh, reason Um and, and again, it is undeniable that there are certain blessings and advantages which will tend to fall upon certain groups of people within a society. The majority culture, for example, within a nation will typically enjoy certain benefits and be more likely to avoid certain prejudices. If you've ever traveled internationally and spent significant time in other countries, other cultures, you have experienced this to be the case. And it's good to be aware of this and to be sympathetic in this way but but the problem at the heart is not having someone having privilege and that really is a misleading term right you know privilege really should be understood to be it is an undeserved blessing it comes from the hand of god and and it gives the responsibility to steward that opportunity and that positioning that god has providentially endowed the problem is Is not privilege itself, but abusing privilege, misusing privilege. Privilege will not necessarily lead to oppression if those individuals with power are using their opportunity to love and help others. And again, I use the example of male leadership. If a patriarchal husband is loving his wife and children, if he is leading them in a strong and selfless manner, that is a good and wonderful thing. And yes, there are instances where several men have failed in that role. The answer is not to rebuke the collective men in general and smash the patriarchy. The answer is to rebuke those individuals who miss the mark and fail to steward that opportunity for the glory of God. Um, within this worldview, of course, checking your privilege is one of the most common phrases that comes out of this worldview. And, and what, what checking your privilege looks like is, is not just being cautious not to misuse your power. It, it's really you close your mouth. And you give deference to those who are considered to be in oppressed groups. If you're outside an oppressed identity group, you are expected to remain silent and listen. And then once you have listened for long enough um, to those who are ideologically approved to speak for that group, then you are to act as an ally simply parroting the supposed perspective of that identity group and not bringing your own thinking or evaluation to the situation. Frederick de Boer, um, I I appreciate his term for this, he calls this the politics of deference. It's a theory that suggests that people have a duty to suspend their critical judgment and engage in unthinking support of whoever claims to speak for the movement against racism and sexism. In real time, the marketplace of ideas has become monopolized by self-appointed spokespeople for the oppressed. And and again, I think this fruit can come into the church in some ways. We can have a tendency to dismiss a perspective merely because it's stated by someone who is perceived to be privileged or to elevate a perspective, not on its own merits, but because it is stated by someone who is oppressed. And even while I would acknowledge that it is important to be understanding and listening and sympathetic to the real experiences that people have gone through, um, truth is truth regardless of who speaks it. I've actually heard it said by some Christians that the Bible can't fully be interpreted properly by those who are privileged, that you actually need the help of those who are Oppressed again, because of an external category, not because of actual experiences, but you need the help of those who are, are classified as oppressed in order to understand the Bible properly. And, and this is where we are veering sharply into postmodernism and failing to understand that truth is truth and God's truth can be received and understood um, by, by any person who is submitting to uh, the Spirit's leading in their life. Number four, intersectionality uh, promotes perpetual victimhood and grievance. Um, The the term, the oppression Olympics has been used of intersectionality. Um, It bestows the higher moral ground to victims, and, and so... Claiming and retaining victim status is of utmost importance. Some of you are familiar with Rosaria Butterfield. She said of intersectionality that it's the belief that who you truly are is measured by how many victim statuses you can claim, with human dignity only accruing through the intolerance of disagreement of any kind. A Jewish writer, uh, Bari Weiss, calls intersectionality a kind of caste system in which people are judged according to how much their particular caste has suffered throughout victory, history. Victimhood is the intersectional way of seeing the, in the intersectional way of seeing the world is akin to sainthood. Power and privilege are profane. Unless and, and you think this is some sort of far-right talking point, not based in reality. Again, it can be very eye-opening to read the stories of those, including those who don't claim to have any connection to the Christian worldview. Those who have journeyed into transgender identity and have done so not because of a a, a real gender dysphoria that's deep within their psyche, but because it gains social advantage for them to identify in such a way. There was one particular detransition story that was read very broadly because it was actually tweeted out by Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling, Um, and it's a a young lady named Helena who gives her story. You can look it up. I I think it's called um, By Any Other Name is the the title of the the article, and uh, the author's name is Helena. And she tells the story of her journey, her temporary journey into transgender identity. and then coming, coming back from that a few years later. But she, she lays out very plainly, and again, I don't, I don't think she's a Christian or would, would identify as such in any way, but she states that part of her journey toward transgender identity was that she was within a subgroup of teenage girls, both in person at her school and through a website called Tumblr, which was popular 10, 15 years ago. And within that world she was seen as oppressive and had no voice because she was a white girl privileged white girl she was they would term a girl like her cis het cisgender heterosexual and and you're also white so, so you don't have a voice. You are meant to kowtow. You are meant to pander. And, and those higher on the social totem pole are those seen to be oppressed. And she literally writes in this article that, that she reasoned and said, hey, if I identify as transgender, I will gain cachet among my peers, That was literally her motivation. And so when she came out and said, I'm actually a boy, there was all kinds of sympathy, all kinds of attention. People were finally listening to her and lauding her and saying, oh, how's it going? You're so oppressed. How can we help you? How can we applaud your journey?" Uh, and, And that's just one small snapshot of the social contagion that is sweeping young people in our nation. And it's because of this promotion of pseudo victimhood and perpetual grievance, which, of course, is the opposite of empowerment, which actually helps people. Uh, Jonathan Haidt's comment is that this new moral culture of victimhood fosters a moral dependence and an atrophying of the ability to handle small interpersonal matters on one's own. It creates a society of constant and intense moral conflict as people compete for status as victims or defenders of victims. This is why we've seen the explosion of concerns about microaggressions combined with demands for trigger warnings and safe spaces." Again, none of this is to deny that we live in a fallen, sinful world, and genuine injustices take place every day. Um, And and by the way, it is vital that we understand this, though, in biblical categories. I, I don't really have a lot of time to spend on this, but I do want to point to footnote 36 And a very helpful study that Kevin DeYoung did as he simply explored exegetically the major justice passages in the Bible and draws some conclusions about how the Bible frames the word justice and the topic of justice in contrast to the way that the world around us understands that. Justice is a very real issue, but keeping entire groups simply based on externals in a perpetual state of victimhood and grievance hinders those who are in those groups from maximizing their opportunities. And, and even in the local church, I think we can perhaps be tempted to coddle or expect less from those who are in oppressed classes, again, regardless of their actual life experiences, Rather than giving them the dignity of saying, You are made in the image of God, you are gifted to be a blessing to those around you for the glory of God and to fully lean into that with full expectations of a Christian. The Bible calls Christians, regardless of their background or, or things they've struggled through, to take responsibility for their lives. Galatians 6 5, each will have to bear his own load. Now, of course there is sin that surround us and the effects of sin, which is why we should so show mercy to those around us as the good Samaritan and the early church exemplified. Uh, Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I love the balance of scripture. Take responsibility for your life and give others a hand as well. Um, uh, whether a person is a steward of five talents or two talents or one, everyone is called to use their God-given gifts to bless others, and, and empowering Christians in this way, regardless of their societal categories, is, is the way forward. And I do want to conclude here by pointing to the gospel as really the best way forward. Um, This is in some ways a common grace issue, a natural law issue. This is why there's actually a lot of common ground with even unbelievers on this topic, because they can borrow enough from the Christian worldview to recognize the problems in it. but the Gospel is really the most the best uh, way forward um, and it's it's been interesting for me to note as i 've researched this, how many people have made the comparison between intersectionality and and a full blown religion. Andrew Sullivan, who is certainly no conservative Christian, uh, notes this about intersectionality. He writes, it posits a classic orthodoxy through which all of human experience is explained and through which all speech should be filtered. Its version of original sin is the power of some identity groups over others. To overcome this sin, you need first to confess, i.e., check your privilege, and subsequently live your life and order your thoughts in a way that keeps this sin at bay. This sin is understood to go so deep into your psyche Especially if you are white or male or straight, that a profound conversion is required, usually called becoming woke. That's the moment of conversion. But Sullivan notes the only thing this religion lacks is salvation. Life is simply an interlocking drama of oppression and power and resistance ending only in death. The gospel is a much better way forward. It stands in stark contrast to intersectionality. It provides a better hope and true healing for those who have been hurt. Um, The gospel provides the best identity that we could possibly have and the best foundation for unity that people could possibly have. You are a chosen race, 1 Peter 2.9 says, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. What other identity could even come close to the glory of the identity of being in Christ? This is why Paul writes in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, of course, we understand in reading that verse is that Paul was not saying that there are not real life realities attached to the fact that you're either a Jew or a Greek, a man or a woman, slave or free. He addresses how to faithfully operate within each of those categories elsewhere in his writings. But his point here is that none of those are to be ultimate in terms of our identity, that we are to intentionally latch on to the identity of being in Christ Jesus, and that provides the unity uh, that Christians need. Uh, We don't need intersectionality because we already have a worldview which equally values different ethnicities, various socioeconomic classes, and both genders. People say, well, how many times have Christians got it wrong? How many times have the church got it wrong? Okay, well, intersectionality isn't the answer. The problem is that we've drifted from the word. And the answer is to get back to a thoroughgoing Christian worldview. The answers are all here. The Bible is sufficient to address the sin of partiality that does remain in so many hearts, but it starts with identifying in the right way, in Christ. The best kind of diversity is achieved by the blood of Christ, which has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people. And nation. The best kind of harmony in real time is produced by spirit-filled believers, not because they're guilted into checking their privilege, but because they're motivated by grace. I love Romans 12, 16, which says, live in harmony with one another. And here's how you do that. Humility. All right? Everyone needs to walk in humility, regardless of the external categories. Humility will lead to harmony. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. In some cases, the lowly person may be a disabled black woman. In other cases, it might be a middle-class white redneck. Either way, we walk in humility, not according to worldly categories, but seeing people as God sees them, made in the image of, of God. That's the best way to combat actual oppression. That's the best way to unify with people who don't look like you. Not to virtue signal, not to promote repackaged liberation theology or socialism. Just love people, truly, according to the instruction of God's word. The gospel not only gives us the best identity and the best foundation for unity, but it it propels us to humility, to gratitude and forgiveness. We should not be naive regarding historical and social dynamics, but neither should we focus primarily on oppression and victimization. Um, Again, that word oppression, I hope we can agree, oppression is not an identity. It's an action, right? It's it's just very misleading to consider oppression in that way because real victims get overlooked in that case. Um, And and of course we acknowledge biblically, every human is guilty of countless sins against God and others, and they are accountable for those sins that they have actually committed or (coughs) actively endorsed. But let's understand biblically, people hurt other people not primarily because of identity groupings, but because of their own selfishness and pride. You know, I I think sometimes about the categorization (laughs) of some crimes as hate crimes. Like, what crime isn't a hate crime? I'm, I'm not trying to be silly about this, but, like, if someone hurts another person, it's because you hate them. It's because you don't love them. Like, all crimes are hate crimes. I, it gets a little bit silly to try to add another layer there. People sin against other people because they're selfish and proud. And, and they may use the external as, as an additional motivating factor, but, but that's never the deepest issue at play. And, and I hope we can recognize and affirm that even if all societal power structures were instantly reversed today, you wouldn't have utopia. People would still be sinners. Everybody is in need of God's grace. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. And this includes those even who have been truly and tragically oppressed. Um, I want us to take a moment to look at uh, John 4. I invite you to turn there. I hate to have a a workshop without asking us to turn to some scripture and consider it together. Um, But I love the, the story in John 4 of Jesus and the woman of Samaria, because I think in many, many ways, it ties together some of these threads that we have been considering and shows us how Jesus would approach this topic in real time. I've heard a number of Christians note the Samaritan woman as a prime biblical example of someone who in our day would consider, be considered as intersectionally oppressed. She was a foreigner. She was religiously ostracized. She was lower class. And she was a woman, which back in that day was much more difficult in real time than in our day. And so it, it, is, it is a wonderful example to us that Jesus moves toward this woman with grace and with intentionality. In fact, the disciples were surprised when they returned that he was talking to this particular woman at the well. So so we should follow the example of Jesus and move toward people who don't look like us, don't have the same background as us. But notice what Jesus does in conversation with her. He actually refused to get drawn into a discussion about identity groups. Notice this, it's very clear in, in verse nine, after he asks for water, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And there was some very real history behind that inquiry for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. But Jesus did not get sucked into that conversation, which I believe is very instructive for us. Instead, he starts talking about living water. And and, and he goes on to really draw out the fact that she had sinned. Uh, we, We all know the pointed question, you know, hey, can you call your husband here? Well, I don't have a husband. Yeah, you've had five husbands, and the one you're with now is not your husband. He deals with her as an individual and as a sinner in need of grace. And then he reveals himself to her as the Messiah as the Savior. Now, let's again do a thought experiment here. Let's just say Jesus had done in this moment what is advocated by intersectionality and even by Christians who are trying to bring in intersectionality into the church. Imagine how this conversation would have gone The woman says to Jesus, how is it that you, a Jew, are are, are with me, a Samaritan? Don't you know the history here, the history of hatred and bigotry and oppression? Imagine if Jesus said, well, you are right about that. And before we talk any further, I just want to acknowledge the stolen land that I am standing on, and I want to give deference to that, and I want to apologize for my ancestors and the part that they had in that, and I want to apologize just for everything that men have done to harm women, and everything we Jews have done to harm Samaritans, and I just want to want to get that out there. How can I advocate for you and be your ally as, as someone who has been oppressed in this myriad of ways, in this intersection? Jesus didn't go that direction at all. He went to her as an individual. He respected her as someone made in the image of God. He was aware that she had a sin problem which could only be solved if she would acknowledge that and own her sin and oppressive behavior. And I think this is very, very, very instructive for us in real time. Don't you love the sufficiency of God's word? for every topic, the relevancy of it. Leslie Newbegin wrote, before the cross of Jesus, there are no innocent parties. His cross is not for some and against others. It is the place where all are guilty and all may be forgiven. There's a reason people were surprised when, when, when the tax collector was included among the disciples, right? It's, it's not that these aren't real cultural issues. It's that the gospel transcends these things. Um, so my conclusion here is that uh, this worldview of intersectionality, although it does borrow inconsistently from Christian ideals, it is incompatible with biblical ethics. And, and my desire for God's redeemed people um, is that we would enjoy uh, the unifying, humbling, forgiving, empowering grace of the Lord. There is something very beautiful About coming together with those who don't look like you, who don't share your background or your experiences, but coming together with those people at the foot of the cross to serve the Lord together, to worship the Lord together. It is a beautiful thing. And that's why I'm passionate about this topic. I could care less about culture wars. I'm passionate about this topic because I don't want Christians to be divided. I want Christians to be able to come together at the foot of the cross and not allow those worldly ideologies and agendas to stand in the way of that. Because even though intersectionality and related ideologies claim to unify in real time, they do nothing but divide. And the gospel does the opposite. I want to conclude by reading from Colossians 3, which again, I think has so much relevancy for this topic. Paul said, here... (coughs) At the feet of Jesus, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. So let's be active in response to this. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other. That's a word you're not going to hear in books on intersectionality. As the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were indeed called in one body and be thankful. The biblical ethic is is just so much better than anything the world has to offer. I do want to note this workshop was based on a fuller uh, journal article that I wrote. If you want to access it, there's a URL there. You can email me for a copy. And I do want to make just a quick recommendation. If you want to uh, read a book-length treatment of this topic, The book by Thaddeus Williams. I'm sorry I didn't include it in your notes, but you can write this down if you'd like. Thaddeus Williams is the author. He's a professor at Biola. And he wrote a book a few years ago called Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. It's one of those books where I wouldn't agree with every last word, but I think on the whole, he treats issues of justice very, very well biblically, considering real data and history. He's very even-handed. He's not unnecessarily obnoxious, nor does he cater uh, to to those who are completely out of line biblically. I think it's a good good treatment of this topic, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth uh, by Thaddeus Williams.